Greetings and welcome back to Haynes and Boone's Media Minute podcast, which is focused on legal developments and trends impacting the media and entertainment industry, intellectual property, open government and First Amendment law. I'm Nathan Koppel, Haynes and Boone's Director of Media Relations. And today we're going to talk about the U.S. Supreme Court's recent foray into copyright law, first in the closely followed Google v. Oracle case from last term, and then we're going to preview a case on the court's 2021-2022 docket um, that will again delve into copyright law. We have two excellent guests today. First off, we're joined by Haynes and Boone partner Jason Bloom, who is a return guest to the podcast. Uh, Jason chairs the firm's copyright practice and has litigated a wide variety of copyright disputes throughout the country. We're also joined by Abby Galger, an associate in Haynes and Boone's New York office who has handled a wide range of high-profile litigation in federal and state courts in New York. Before we get started, our usual disclaimer, this podcast is for informational purposes only. It's not intended to be legal advice and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. The topics we discuss are subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. Jason and Abby, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nathan. So, Jason, I'm going to start with you to, to summarize, if you if you would please, the Google v. Oracle case, which I know has been highly uh, uh, you know followed closely in the media. Yeah, so this is really you know I think aptly described as the case of the century. Um, in copyright law for for a few reasons. And, you know, the first is just the amount in controversy, which was, uh, I think, ultimately equated to be about $9 billion that Oracle was seeking uh, from Google. And it was also a case that, you know, lasted for quite a long time. I believe it was filed, uh, or the dispute arose about 15 years ago. I think the case was pending for for over 10 years. Um, and it saw two jury trials, two federal circuit appeals, and uh, two petitions to the U.S. Supreme Court, the first of which was denied, but the, the last of which was granted and resulted in the opinion um, that, that came out this term. And, and what the case is, is really about is, you know, you've got these two, two giants. You've got, you know, Oracle, um, you know, which is, is certainly one of the biggest software development companies in the in the country. And then you've got Google, um, you know, which is obviously massive as well and, and spans, you know, several several tech industries. And what happened was when Google decided back around, I think, 2008 or so that uh, it wanted to get into the smartphone market, Um and, you know, obviously Apple was dominating it at the time and, and Google decided that it wanted to launch its own smartphones, its own platform, which which was uh, and is still known as Android. And in order to do that, Google wanted uh, to be able to have developers of apps for Android use the Java language, which at the, at the time was developed and owned by Sun Microsystems and, and later was acquired uh, by Oracle. Uh, the benefit of the Java language is that it's very well known to to app developers and code writers and it's it's known as write once uh, you know play anywhere which basically means that uh, it's an interoperable language where you know you write a program once and it could be used on multiple platforms uh, so it's very popular and and Google wanted uh, programmers who are writing apps to to you be able to use Java 
Um, and because that would that would result in more apps, which would result in in the Android platform becoming uh, more useful and popular. So Google originally approached Sun Microsystems to try to negotiate a license. Those uh, negotiations were not successful. And at the end of the day, Google uh, elected to copy um, about eleven thousand five hundred lines of what are known as app- APIs, which are which are application programming interfaces. And what that is, is it's basically the the interface that a, a coder uses to write a program. So it's it's language that coders learn and know, and, and they're able to select certain commands that give uh, more complex commands to computers when, when coding. And uh, that's what was at issue in this dispute, is whether or not or, uh, Google was permitted to copy those 11,500 lines, which, you know, when viewed in the... Um, you know, looking at the totality of what what is Android, you know, which in- includes millions of lines of code, these eleven thousand five hundred lines don't seem like a lot. But when viewed a- in the context of the declaring code, which is part of the APIs, uh, you know, that were used, um, you know, it is it is a more significant uh, amount of copying. Um, so that's the the basis of the dispute and the ba- the basis of Oracle's request for for nine billion dollars in damages. Abby, any any other points about the case you'd, you'd care to to note that you think were were important? Yeah, so I think to kind of better understand this case, too, it's really helpful to understand how exactly the API functions. As Jason mentioned, the API is a tremendous time saving measure for programmers. It allows them to access thousands of pre written computing tasks with the use of simple commands. So, for example, if a programmer wants to tell a computer to sort data alphabetically, the API allows the programmer to input a simple command, identify the data that they want sorted, and the API takes care of the rest. But without the API, the programmer would actually have to write code to tell the computer how to sort that data in alphabetical order every time the programmer wanted the computer to execute that function. If we actually break down the API, it essentially functions in three parts. The first being that short form command that's associated with a specific computing task. The API's declaring code takes that command and facilitates retrieval of the computing task within its organizational structure. Once it locates that computing task, then it's the API's implementing code that tells the computer how to execute the task. So here, although Google wrote its own implementing code, what it copied were packages of Oracle's declaring code, which as Jason said, amounted to approximately 11,500 lines of code. Um, And that does sound like a lot. You know, in the perspective of the entire program that they developed, Google wrote more than 2.8 million lines of code on its own. But essentially what it copied was what it needed to allow programmers to use that familiar Java language, those short form commands to call up Google's computing tasks. And without them doing that, then programmers would have had to learn an entirely new system in order to program for the Android platform. So that's really where this dispute came from. Oracle looked at Google's copying and said that that infringed both their copyrights and their patents. 
And I'll st- stay with you, Abby. What, so what were the main legal issues presented to the Supreme Court and, and um, how did they resolve them? So the two key issues in this case from the copyright perspective were first, whether Oracle's declaring code was copyrightable at all. And the second, you know, if the code was subject to protection under the Copyright Act, whether Google's copying of that code qualified as fair use. And the Supreme Court actually declined to answer the first question. They just focused their analysis on the fair use defense, which is a highly fact-intensive inquiry, and if fair use is found, operates as a complete defense to copyright infringement. So ultimately, the 6-2 majority of the court found that Google's use of Oracle's declaring code was fair and spared Google any liability. And I think we'll get back into the fair use analysis, but but Jason, I just asked you, was do you think the copyright bar, excuse me, was generally pleased uh, with the court's narrow approach in its Well, room? I think it really depends who you who you ask. I mean, I think that that there is probably a collective sigh of relief um, that the court sidestepped the copyrightability issue. So there were two issues that were presented to the Supreme Court. One was whether the code. Uh, the APIs were copyrightable at all in the first place, uh, and specifically the declaring code. Um, and second, whether assuming they were copyrightable, it was a fair use. Um, now, generally, a court's going to address the liability question first, which would be copyrightability before reaching a defense, which is fair use. Uh, but in this case, the Supreme Court decided not to get into the copyrightability issue, which is is fairly murky and and you know could send pretty big ripple effects throughout the the software industry. Um, you know, it's, it's long been understood that uh, code is, is certainly copyrightable and that's that's in the Copyright Act. But, you know, the, the degree to which code is copyrightable, you know, I mean, software and, and source code in particular are, you know, not on their face, do not seem as, as creative as other types of, of copyrightable works. There, there's a certain functionality to software that that many think would would often take it out of the scope of copyrightability. Um, so, you know, rather than get into that and then possibly send ripple effects, the, the court jumped into uh, the fair use analysis. And, and I think that's probably for the best because fair use is a very fact-intensive analysis um, you know, as is evidenced by the facts of, of this case. And by, by deciding the case on fair use grounds, the court was able to rule on this case without necessarily, you know, sending shockwaves throughout the industry that are going to um, have, have immediate or even long-term impacts uh, on other situations. And that's because, you know, fair use has to be addressed on a case-by-case basis based on the facts presented and, you know, the, the Supreme Court made clear in this case that its intent was not to in any way change or alter fair use law, but just to apply the existing law to these facts. That being said, I think that the fact that the court found fair use in this context of, of um, you know, basically code copying um, will have the impact of fair use uh, being viewed as a more viable defense in, in software cases going forward. And I want, um, you to, want you to walk us through the court's fair use analysis, but but I'm just curious as a general proposition, is fair use a pretty common defense to in, in copyright infringement cases? 
Uh, it, it is a common defense in, in certain copyright infringement cases. I mean, it, it doesn't have applicability in every copyright case. Um, but, you know, you see it raised more and more. But as I mentioned, it's an extremely fact-intensive inquiry. And it's not something that I would advise, would advise any client to hang their hat on on the front end. Um, because you're only going to get a fair use ruling in your favor after spending uh, a lot of uh, time and money on attorneys and, and litigation. Um, and it's never certain how it's going to come out because the analysis is so fact intensive and involves you know, several different factors. Um, there's a lot of inconsistency among the various courts um, when applying fair use. What um, are the factors, Jason, that a court considers when? Well, so uh, there are a few. There's first the the purpose and character of the use, including whether it's it's commercial or nonprofit. I mean, the Copyright Act describes certain categories of of uses that that may be fair, including you know when you're using something for educational purposes or for news reporting or something like like that. So that's what that factor really uh, generally encompasses. Although it's been expanded to uh, include whether um, the use is transformative in some way, which which I'll discuss in a moment. The next is the nature of the copyrighted work. So, you know, and that came into effect in this case as well. You know, the, the court looked at, you know, one aspect of the code, the, the declaring code, and found that it's less, it's still copyrightable, but it's less within the core of copyright than... Um, than the, the more specific implementing code that, that involves a little bit more creativity. Um, and the court factored that into its decision uh, since the declaring code was what's really at issue here because that's what was, was actually copied. The second factor is the amount and substantiality uh, of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole. Um, so that, that really entails whether you're taking just a snippet or you're taking the entire work. Uh, if you're taking the entire work and copying it, you're less likely to be found uh, uh, to be engaged in a fair use. Whereas if you're taking a, a snippet, if you think of it as a, a book or an article and you're just you know taking a few sentences and, and copying them, um, that's more likely to be found a fair use. And then the, the, the final factor is the effect uh, upon the potential market uh, or value of the copyrighted work. And that, that basically looks at, you know, is this use um, impacting the copyright owner's ability to, to market and sell its own work um, because somebody else is taking it for free? It's, yeah, it's interesting. On this podcast, we've talked about fair use in the context of songs, and album, and movie titles. It's, it's interesting to think about it applied to code. Uh, so... How did the majority find on, on these factors in the Google? Well, so the, the majority, as, as pointed out by the dissent, uh, first off, took the factors out of order. The first factor they looked at was the nature of the copyrighted work, um, which is typically the second factor. And that's that's how it's listed in the Copyright Act. Um, and that kind of was the starting point of its opinion, because it said this declaring code is is really, you know, we're not saying it's not copyrightable, but it's further from the core of copyright. And I think that that finding influenced kind of the, the analysis of the remaining factors. Uh, they next looked at the purpose and character of the use and really focused on transformative use. And I think this is the most controversial aspect of the opinion, because they held that the use by Google was transformative because whereas these APIs had previously been used uh, pretty much exclusively in, in laptop and desktop computer applications, Google is now using them in smartphones. And therefore, because it was using them in a different 
type of hardware, basically, in a different type of setting, that use was transformative. The dissent argued that that's not a transformative use. That's what's called a derivative use. You're you're copying something. You're not transforming the declaring code. You're not changing it, uh, which is is what I typically think of as transformative use. But but you're basically just using it in a different setting. And you know, I, I, some would say that that's that's more comparable to making a movie based on a book um, than you know. Uh, taking a you know a, a painting and making it into something that's that's completely new and different and reaches a different audience, which is a typical uh, concept of a transformative use, um, which, which still may not qualify as fair use, but at, at least you would think of that as transformative. Yeah, at least you're transforming something. Yeah, so I mean that it would at least more likely satisfy one of the factors. But here, the Supreme Court said, well, if you take it in a different a different. Uh, type of hardware, a different type of context, then, then that's transformative. So I think that's the aspect of the opinion that's likely to have a lasting impact and to be cited uh, most frequently going forward. Uh, and then on the amount and substantiality of the, the work used, they focused on, you know, the, the Android program as a whole and, you know, how Java really only the, the 11,500 lines uh, a code copied were a small part of the millions of lines of code. But, you know, the dissent said, look, you, you got to look at not the the work that uh, is alleged to be infringing, but the original copyrighted work, how much of that was was copied. And, and here, when you look at the declaring code, especially even if you compare it to the end product um, of Android, if you compare with the descent uh, called apples to apples, it's it's much more of a st- substantial person than if you compare uh, the declaring code to the entirety of Android. And then the effect on the was, was uh, just just that part of it, the substantiality analysis. Do you think that was that generally accepted by most as, as sound, or was that also controversial? Well, it's certainly controversial in the sense that you know I think the the descent made some very compelling arguments. Um, you know, so I, I think some would would their eyebrows might be raised by, by that aspect of the opinion as well. Uh, and then the majority also found that there was no real market um, value that was impacted because the value of Java is, you know, not in the code itself, but just in the fact that, that um, programmers like to use it. Um, you yeah, know, the, the dissent was able to attack that as well by saying, you know, look, uh, Oracle's ability to license this, this, these APIs was drastically reduced um, after after they were copied into Android, and gave specific examples of that and how Oracle um, was actually financially harmed um, as a result of this. So, you know, again, the dissent is is not the controlling opinion, but you know, it does raise some interesting counterpoints to the majority's holding. Is there any sort of uh, just numerical? I, did, I did do in finding fair use. Do courts have to find at least several factors or majority of these factors are true? Or if they were to find just, for example, that that there's no potential market value for the copyrighted work, could that standing alone uh, argue in favor of a fair use defense? Yeah, it's it's by no means that you have to find all factors in favor of fair use. It's, it's very much a balancing act and, and you know, different factors can be given different weights and sometimes are. I mean, transformative use has been given a lot more weight uh, and a lot of circuits recently um, and is considered by some as the primary factor. Um, and, and that's what makes fair use such a murky area of law and so difficult to predict is that 
you know, no factor is determinative. And, you know, just because one factor weighs against fair use doesn't mean there won't be a, a fair use finding by by a court. Well, thanks for that, Jason. Um, so we are, by my count, I guess, still several months uh, until the beginning of the next Supreme Court term. But let's talk about a case that is on the Supreme Court's docket, uh, Unicolors versus H&M. Um, the, the court granted cert in the case June 1. Abby, if I can turn to you, can you summarize the case and the, the legal questions that it raises? Yes. So this t- case takes us into a totally different area of copyright law, fashion design. This case arose after Unicolor sued H&M for allegedly selling garments bearing one of Unicolor's copyrighted designs. And in defense, H&M has attacked the validity of Unicolor's copyright registration, claiming that it contains inaccurate information and therefore is not a valid registration to base a lawsuit off of. H&M's argument really depends on a particular section of the Copyright Act, Section 411B, which states that a certificate of registration can be used to enforce a copyright, even if it contains some inaccurate information, unless that inaccurate information, if known, would have caused the register of copyrights to refuse the registration. And traditionally, the Ninth Circuit, among some other circuits, have interpreted that provision to mean that a registration with errors or inaccuracies will be valid unless those inaccuracies were a result of bad faith or an intent to defraud on the part of the registrant. But in this case, the Ninth Circuit changed tack and actually said that no bad faith or intent to defraud is required. So that decision has arguably created a circuit split on this issue, and that is ultimately the legal question that the Supreme Court has granted cert to resolve. Whether again, whether an intent to defraud is necessary to, to invalidate a copyright registration with exactly. inaccuracies. Okay. Exactly. Well, Jason, do you expect the opinion, however it's decided, uh, to, to potentially have a big impact on copyright law? It could. I mean, if the Supreme Court is were to find that no intent to defraud is required. Um, or that you know, at least knowledge of the mistake is is not required, which is is set forth in the Copyright Act. Um, you know, you're going to see a lot of effort to invalidate copyright registrations when when lawsuits are filed. That'll be a pretty common go to offense because you know it's it's pretty easy to find some error in in a lot of copyright registrations. Either you know because uh, copyright registrations are obviously uh, often uh, prepared and, and filed by lay people, and and sometimes. Uh, you know, it's not entirely clear what information is required or what constitutes a published work or an unpublished work and, you know, what a, a date of publication is and, and things like that. So if any minor error in a copyright registration, um, you know, could read or lead to invalidity, uh, whether or not fraud was intended or not, then that could have some pretty serious impacts. Uh, conversely, if the Supreme Court finds that, um, you know, fraud or at least knowledge of the error is required uh, before a registration can be invalidated, then that 
I think would pretty much maintain the status quo. But you know, more than that, I mean, even if you know about an error in a copyright registration, you know, I think the law is is pretty clear that it has to be the type of error that would impact the copyright office's decision to grant the registration. So there's a materiality know, component to it. Yeah. So if you're claiming that you owned a work because it was a work made for hire created by an employee, um, but it later turns out, and, and you knew that was false, and it later turns out in litigation that the work was created by an independent contractor, and, and it was not, in fact, uh, a work made for hire, and you didn't have an assignment or properly acquire ownership to the work. That's a material um you know, misrepresentation and a material thing that, that would have caused the copyright office to reject the registration if it had known it. But if you just, you know, get the publication date wrong by by a month or say that something's a, a published work as opposed to an unpublished work, you know, I think that's the type of thing that, that the copyright office might correct if they knew about it in the registration process, but not likely something that would cause them to refuse to register the work. So you've also got to look at the the substance of the registration. And I think that's what most most courts do. There is a process for um, in litigation for submitting the question to the copyright office as to whether they would have rejected the registration um, if they had known of, of certain facts. And, you know, a, a lot of courts follow that. In fact, the copyright, the copyright act says they shall follow that procedure if their questions raised as to the validity of a registration. So I think if that process is followed, then courts will, will always have the insight of the copyright office. But one other thing I, I think is important to note is, you know, in the wake of the Supreme Court's uh, fourth estate case from a few terms back, it is now clear that you have to have a copyright registration in order to to file suit, which is is the import of this case, where if you can validate somebody's copyright registration, is that a grounds for dismissing their, their lawsuit? And the answer is going to be not always. And, and, I mean, unless you can show that the, the registration never should have been entered because they don't own the work or something like that. But Section 410 of the Copyright Act actually provides that you either have to have a registration in hand or a denial of a registration from the Copyright Office. And if, if the Copyright Office denies your application to register your work, you're still entitled to proceed with a lawsuit. You just have to you know, notify the Copyright Office of it and give them an opportunity to, to appear in the lawsuit if they choose to. But just because a registration is found to be invalid or that it would have been denied does not mean that, that a lawsuit has to be dismissed. And I know you're not in the prediction business, but do you think the court will preserve some requirement that you that you have to establish a culpable mental state to invalidate a registration with inaccuracies just because of the incredible impact that it might have if they went the other way? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm hopeful that they'll they'll follow the language of the Copyright Office, uh, Copyright Act, which says that uh, the misrepresentation has to be made with knowledge and that it has to be the type of misrepresentation that would have caused the Copyright Office to not have issued the registration certificate in the first place. Uh, now, I don't, I don't read with knowledge necessarily uh, equating to uh, fraudulent intent. Um, I mean, you can make some misrepresentations with knowledge without intending to defraud anybody. Um, so I, I, I feel like that's kind of the the murkier area, but I, I would be very surprised if they don't at least find a knowledge requirement because that's that's set forth pretty clearly in the Copyright Act. Well, that makes sense. Jason, thank you so much. And Abby, really appreciate your analysis as well. Before we sign off today, I'd just like to invite listeners to visit our website 
at HanesBoone.com, where you can find our podcast and other content, including our media, entertainment, and First Amendment newsletter. Our most recent newsletter, in fact, includes an article by Jason Abbey and Haynes and Boone partner Lee Johnson on the Google Oracle Oracle case. So I encourage people to read that as a companion to today's podcast. Um, Thank you so much for listening and please continue to tune into HB Media Minute. Thank you.